Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today is part two of my discussion about Dr. Jennifer L. Morgan's important 2004 book, Laboring Women, Reproduction and Gender in New World Slavery. Instead of Dr. Morgan, who was featured in part one of the discussion, I enlisted a few hashtag Black Twitter historians to pull up to the pod and discuss the importance of Dr. Morgan's Laboring Women to the field of slavery studies, gender and sexuality studies, and other fields, along with why laboring women is so important to each scholar, and also where the field of slavery studies is actually going. So, say hello to Dr. Natasha Lightfoot, Associate Professor of History at Columbia University, a historian of slavery and emancipation studies, and Black identities, politics, and cultures in the fields of Caribbean, Atlantic World, and African Diaspora History. Next is Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, Assistant Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. And she is a historian of Black diasporic freedom struggles from slavery to emancipation. Plus, she is also an important digital humanist. And as a digital humanist, Johnson explores ways digital and social media disseminate and create historical narratives, in particular, comparative histories of slavery and people of African descent. And lastly, we have Hallie Ashby, PhD student in history, also at the Johns Hopkins University. Ashby is a historian of Caribbean slavery and emancipation, and her research concerns questions about gender, reproduction, and sexuality. Let me tell y'all. The conversation you are about to witness is, shall we say, uh, chef's kiss. I kid you not. Chef's kiss all the way. So sit back and enjoy the ride, y'all. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Natasha Lightfoot, Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, and Hallie Ashby. How are y'all doing today? Great so far. Thank you so much. This is Natasha Lightfoot. Very happy to be here and honored to be in conversation with such wonderful folks as yourself. Happy to be here. This is Jessica Marie Johnson. Hi, I'm Hallie. I'm also happy to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation. Most definitely, most definitely. And so y'all, this has been a labor of love, getting three amazing scholars together to discuss one of the most monumental, cataclysmic, amazing books ever. Like, ever, ever, ever. And that is Dr. Jennifer Morgan's Laboring Women, right? It's an amazing book. And so I made sure I was like, I wanted to get some of my, some of my Twitter friends, some of my hashtag (laughs) Black Twitter historians onto the podcast, New Books in African American Studies, to discuss a phenomenal book, not only with Dr. Morgan herself, right? Because I had her on for a uh, for 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 a 16 year anniversary discussion about the book, 
right? AKA kind of like an oral history. But I was like, I wanted to get a conversation on where we have a supplemental conversation with three scholars whose work is very much in the tradition that Dr. Jennifer Morgan blazed for us all. So that's why we're on here today to discuss this phenomenal book. And so first question for for y'all, tell us about your initial experiences reading Laboring Women. Um, So I'll speak up first. This is Natasha. Um, I just was thankful um, for her saying straight up, Black women were there in the early history of the colonial project in the British, um, you know, North American system of enslavement that, you know, that understanding them in their bodies um, as, you know, as working women and as reproductive beings, right? That the fiction (laughs) surrounding the understanding of what they, of, of what they could produce bodily, right? Even though the reality of their lives in fields meant that there was going to be much, uh, you know, much difficulty, much torture, much, you know, in the way of an agony that becomes a sort of foundational part of what is really the making of, you know, the Western world. That, you know, that we have this thing that just sort of says straight up, you can't just keep reducing the concept of enslavement to the body of a man. <laughs> that, that, just, that, that just needed to be said. And that it took so long for, for that to be said. You know, we can talk about a genealogy of this history, but really before her, there were only few people. And it, it, in fact, it really only started, you know, roughly about two decades earlier with, you know, Deborah Gray White. So that was, you know, kind of criminally late given how far the history of slavery, the historiography of slavery had come up to that point, right? And at the time when she was writing and she says so in her intro, it's only like four studies besides Deborah's at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it just meant something for her to just be there and saying what she was saying when she was saying it. For sure. Yeah, I completely, um, I completely agree. Um, so my first encounter with Dr. Morgan's work as a whole was in the volume um, "New Studies of Slavery," uh, where I encountered her work alongside um, Stephanie Camp's work, alongside Ed Baptist's work from his first book on Florida, and um, I believe Vincent Brown is also in that volume. So many scholars that today have really significantly changed and reshaped how we understand bondage. And for me, that reshaping meant not just understanding slavery as an institution or the plantation as a site of domination, but also understanding that Black life and Black political and social life has a place in what we're studying and that um, Africans and people of African descent had you know, diverse, but um, present, um, not but diverse and present ways of thinking about their world. Um, These were works that for me went beyond and and in some ways challenged some ways of thinking about agency as this thing that can be given to the enslaved. These were works that just presume that 
um, Africans have, you know, are human beings and therefore are uh, worthy of study. And for Jennifer Morgan's work, Laboring Women, to do that, to, to then create a whole monograph focused solely on Black women's experiences and focused in particular on their reproductive experiences and all the different ways that those experiences shaped how they understood the world that they were entering as enslaved people, as um, those migrating, forcibly migrated from the continent, as those arriving in the mainland, um, in Barbados, in the, in the Caribbean more broadly. Like that was, like I read this as a graduate student and I had not been told you could write a whole book on reproduction. <laughs> like to see somebody be able to do that, you know, not just write it about black women, about blackness and womanhood as, as together, but to do it on a topic that at the time people maybe didn't say this, but it was understood that reproductive is this very specialized topic and maybe you'll get a chapter out of it. Maybe you'll get a journal article out of it. You couldn't possibly cultivate enough research to write an entire book. And now, of course, we know that that is foolish um, and sexist and racist as well, a sentiment as far as the kind of work that is seen as legitimate in the academy. And at the time, though, like Morgan's, Morgan's book is the one that, that opened that door for, for scholars to be able to take reproduction seriously, to take Black womanhood seriously enough to see that there are not just, you know, you don't just study Black women, you study, there are subsets of Black women's lives that, you know, create whole archives and bodies of knowledge and each of those deserves its own special study as well so yeah um my perspective is really different because i didn't really have an understanding of what the field of history was i was my third year in undergrad and um my american history professor offered me this book because i was writing a paper on what I thought was really exciting about proto-eugenics uh, reproduction in the intercolonial slave trade in the U.S. South. Um, so he passed me this book, I read it, and I didn't really understand the intervention she was making at the time. I didn't understand historiography, but what I did take with me and what has stuck with me for like the rest of my academic career, just as Dr. Lightfoot and Dr. Johnson has said, is that gender and specifically Black women's reproductive bodies are the central axis in understanding the formation of the plantation process, slavery, and slave societies. And it completely altered the way. And I'm really happy uh, that I encountered this work at the point I did, because the way I read slave studies um, completely changed. I'm always looking for gender. I'm always looking for reproduction. And I'm sure we'll get into this later. It's completely shaped my research. For sure. And, you know, since, you know, I, I, I'm a part of this as well, I might as well tell tell the audience about my own discussions and uh, experiences with uh, Dr. Morgan's work. And I, I think for me, it, it began um, um, the first time that I finished the book because I, hey, no, no, no cap, no cap. There are a couple of times where I read uh, the first couple of chapters, but the first time I completed it, hey, you know, I'm I'm cool with mine. I'm cool with mine. Um, <laughs> Uh, I remember <laughs> Dr. <laughs> hey, now don't laugh. <laughs> the first time um, I completed it was actually um, two, actually two years ago. Um, one of her former students when I was a PhD student at the University of Delaware, um, Dr. Laura Helton, um, had a class called Black Atlantic in the Archive. 
And that actual class is, it's, it's so wild how things happen. Two years ago, I remember we had a um, that class, like a link in the, in the archive, and Dr. Morgan was in, the first invited speaker um, for the class. And because Dr. Helton is also uh, a, a former, um, she, she was an NYU PhD graduate as well. So, you know, uh, invited yes, uh, Dr. Morgan down. <laughs> exactly. So and so, hey, oh, that the connections here. We love these genealogies. <laughs> and so what happens is, um, you know, I have a, a conversation with her and, you know, I was like, hey, you know, these anniversaries are coming up. Julia Scott's book is coming out, The Common Win. And really, it's funny, that was the, the initial first time I fully finished the book. It was also the time that the that the seeds were planted for this actual interview uh, to happen. And so it's, it's wild how, you know, everything happens in this kind of way. And, 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 and all of this actually makes me think also about, right. And, and, and we brought this up too, in terms of what particular details, like really struck you about Dr. Morgan's work in terms of when you're in class or when you're, you know, in seminar or, or such, how, how did the actual arguments that she's, she's discussing really, really really hit you because a lot of a lot of stuff about the book just in general about uh even just how she began the book right in your in 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 white european men's heads effectively in their construction of of black women and, and african women and so so tell us about those initial experiences and just what did you think just like damn like how she do that like that, that that's that's how i that's what i thought so, so how about you, uh, Dr. Johnson? We'll start with you this time. Sure. You know, I, um, uh, I think for me, and I'll say what is, is probably, um, what might be most people's responses. And then I'll say what was my own, like, particular response. Um, it, the piece that I found so impactful in laboring women, uh, is the way that, uh, Morgan is able to situate African women as doing, and, and their reproductive labor in particular, as doing more than um, offering, you know, enslaved people to the plantation machine, which it does do that, but it also offers an intellectual logic to the rise of slaveholding empires. And that's, you know, I find it genius that she does start exactly as you say in the minds of, of of white European men and also on the African continent. So she's doing so many things at once. And this is also um, in the piece that was published in, um, I believe it was William Mary Quarterly, some could suckle over their shoulder that a lot of people also cite. Uh, she's, she's doing a lot of things at once. She's reminding us that, um, that the diaspora begins on the continent and that if we don't understand what's happening along the coast um, in the in in the interior, and among different polities and Africans' engagement with Europeans, we're actually missing a key piece of Black sociality on the other side of the Atlantic. And she also, um, you know, it takes very seriously that European men have their own ideas about reproduction and that those ideas consciously and by choice shift in order to create a logic that permits the enslavement of Africans and that logic requires black women's wounds. And that to me is more than just, um, 
you know, private sector intervention creates, you know, more slaves. And like, there's a kind of like hard labor economic logic to that history of reproduction and Black women's experience of reproduction and slavery. And that's also important to understand. But Morgan also um, offers us an intellectual history. She offers us a theorization of the rise of Blackness, of the rise of, of bondage, and also makes it you know, very much clear that this was a conscious act. This wasn't, you know, made economic logic acts. This isn't um, European men sort of deciding that they would just sort of fall into slaveholding um, uh, processes and and logics that are already happening in the continent, maybe, or, you know, slavery has existed since, you know, antiquity, you know, so why wouldn't it keep existing? No, these were deliberate choices. Uh, and that changes how we understand the, the crime and the legacy of slavery. We can't we can't turn away from um, its its true violences and its true evils. And I think that that is is super super important. It means that not only do we have an economic history of this period, um, we also have an intellectual one, and that intellectual one requires Black women. But for me, one of the other pieces that I think um, we don't talk enough about when we're talking about laboring women is that Morgan also, um, she sort of also kind of body checks creolization and creolization as a theory. One of my favorite chapters to talk about or assign is her chapter, um, Hannah and Her Children, where she's talking about um, enslaved women who are navigating moving between Barbados and South Carolina and creating families and where, you know, creating families in Barbados, creating families in South Carolina, having their children be allowed to come with them, having their children not be allowed to come with them. And that actually, when we're talking about creolization, which at the time when this came out, the conversation was about Minson Price talking about creolization. It was anthropological. It was about music, um, you know, um, music notes that cross the Atlantic. It was about food. It was about, you know, like, you know, cultural retentions. It was about Atlantic Creoles, Ira Berlin's formation of Atlantic Creoles. It wasn't about gender and it wasn't about reproduction, but you don't have a, for, a, a concept like creolization that is about the birth of, you know, literally the birth of culture, the birth of African American culture is the name of Vincent Price's book. And it's devoid of a, of a discussion about like what actually birth looks like for those on the ground and how that is actually a fundamental part of creolization. And so what Morgan does is is take up creolization, I think, <laughs> and challenge us to actually take African women seriously as part of that process. And that, if you do that, changes everything that we thought we were talking about when it came to that as this kind of like, in some ways, um, genderless, bloodless theory. Now it's a theory that actually has flesh, it has wounds, it has um, you know, sinews and ligaments. It has children that are left behind. It has all of these things. And so um, those are some of the things that Morgan, um, Morgan, that strike me when I come back to Morgan's work always. Wow. Dr. Johnson, you just gave me like a whole geography. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, like I never considered that creolization aspect. Like I didn't, I didn't see that, but like I do now. I do now. Um, I guess I'll continue. Like for me, um, it was that chapter one that kind of really blew me off my feet and thinking about um, black women's like monstrous and fecund bodies um, and understanding how the very essence of racial difference was dependent upon what Morgan calls a contradictory character of the African female body. Um, she had this quote where she goes, um, is a body that's both desirable and repulsive, available, untouchable, productive and reproductive, beautiful and black. And I always go back to that quote because it really 
takes me away is that all um, all the necessary roles that Black women's bodies were required to play in order to make um, empire and slavery possible. And I think that's something that we've continued to be thinking about since Horton Spiller's um, canonical article, Mama's Babies, Papa's Maybe, thinking about the ungendering, thinking about how Black women are simultaneously hypersexualized, but also not are also not women. So what kind of category or what kind of character do they have to take on in order to just the legal justification for racialized slavery? So going through the the archive she uses and really drawing out for us how European thinkers um, through travel narratives and as Afran says, intellectual history of how this came to be was just really fundamental for me for understanding Black womanhood in slavery. Um, so I'd like to jump in here and just also say that um, I chapter one is of, of of laboring women is you know obviously just by itself an incredible intervention and part of what makes it so wonderfully useful for students at both the undergrad and graduate level um, is the fact that she lays bare how much of an entirely violent centuries long system turns on initial fiction. Again, that's the thing I just keep getting stuck on is this idea of things like women breastfed over their shoulders. And no, you know what I mean? Just the vis the visual act of, mm -hmm. you know, of, of actually believing in your mind that somehow blackness and black people and black women are so fundamentally different that they would do things in such an impossible manner, right? <laughs> and it's so absurd. And yet, the, it is the grist of the conviction, right, that, that basically underlines, again, centuries of, 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 of violent system. Um, you know, that there is, a, you know, this idea that Black women don't experience pain because they are not the daughters of Eve and so they can give birth and get right back up and be in the field. No, you all want people to give birth and get right back up and be in the field. So you have told yourself <laughs> these, these absurd things. Again, speaking not just as a historian, but I literally would stop in the middle of discussing this chapter and say, I am also a woman that has given birth. <laughs> and no, you know what I mean? That this, that, so, you know, there's a way that I, I, I just had a visceral reaction, you know? Um, so, so my reading, Strange, like maybe not strange, I was gonna say strangely enough, but not strange at all. My reading of this text first came before I was a mother, but the several times reading it after, I was just even more <laughs> struck by. And I don't know if that's problematic to say, but I have to say it because it, I think, you know, it really meant something to try and, and understand fully what these men thought made sense you know, that there was something really incredible about how much she shows the work and just said, look, look at what these people really said <laughs> and how they managed to make whole nations crown throw 
you know, essentially the equivalent of of currently billions of dollars behind such ridiculous notions, right? And mm-hmm. take millions of, of Black lives and wither them in various ways through these notions. So that's, I mean, chapter one is just incredible. But interestingly enough, too, Jessica, you went right to the other chapter that I love so much, which is Hannah and her children. I mean, that is, yes, for all the reasons that you mentioned, um, I mean, the thing that stays with me, you know how you read certain passages and no matter what, you're, you come back to those passages it, when you're doing other work that may not even have anything to do with this text at all. It's Mm -hmm. her, so she has this one anecdote about a woman who is in South Carolina and decides to name her child Mind because in Jennifer Morgan's analysis, she could call little else in South Carolina hers. Only her child could be called hers. And really we know that not even her child could be called hers, that the naming itself was just a bit of ephemera because who knows what happens to this woman and her child over the longer term, right? So you get a narrative of the sorts of, um, these sorts of fine points of what it means to be, to be, you know, an enslaved parent an enslaved child there's so much happening in that in that piece um and you know again i go back to what you just said jessica about the idea that what jennifer morgan's work does is to show you that this process of birthing a new world culture based in africanness has flesh has wounds and has emotions some of my students used to really struggle with the idea that 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 Morgan would take the liberty to give what were actual very actually very plausible speculations about what this experience may have been for the African women who were living through it every day, you know. And I'm sure <laughs> that obviously, you know, that sort of pushback came from many of her peers in the field at the time too, but what would we do without the work of some really important unanswerable questions? Like there's something freeing about that sort of work. So, yeah. You know, I, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was, um that was, that was incredible. That was incredible because for me, I, I, I think that that was, Great, because I think for for all of your answers, we really just get a phenomenal understanding of the field of how Dr. Morgan's work has shaped us. Um, and it's actually a great segue to the next question, um, because I because I know Dr. Lightfoot, you were at NYU, um, so this is for everybody. But I'm 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 especially interested in you for this one. Um, did laboring women help motivate you 
and the, it's the collective three of y'all, you, in any way to pursue a PhD in history or affect what you would later focus on as historians and scholars? Well, let me just say that Jennifer Morgan joined the faculty of NYU right in time for my descent. Okay, so she started at NYU as I was leaving NYU. And the minute she got there, I said, you have to be on my committee. <laughs> Please, can you be on my committee? <laughs> um, and, you know, it was the beginning of such an important relationship for me intellectually, um, because Jennifer is so much more than a mentor, although she is a mentor to me. She's an interlocutor. She is someone who has pushed me in so many ways that, you know, I think my whole committee was amazing, but, you know, the the addition of her was sort of like the unlocking of something for me that, you know, made me really understand the specifics of the women that I was trying to trace in, you know, really, you know, kind of important, critical ways, like really seeing who they were. She kept you know, so first of all, she volunteered to call into my dissertation defense from Sevilla while she and Herman and their their daughter were there for a summer while he was researching. And she, you know, stood in a hot phone booth to call into my defense. And so, and that became, you know, sort of how very much willing she was to always go the extra mile to, to read my work, to critique my work, to get me to see the different ways that I was onto something that I couldn't quite see yet in terms of revealing something new about just exactly how emancipation had very much differentially affected Black men versus Black women, right? Um, and being able to have this as a foundation to say that there's something that there's something old there's always been something specific about um you know the way that that black women were seen in the kind of the making of the plantation complex and that whatever whatever work happened at different historical moments to undo some parts of it whatever still endured was always being calculated through what women's bodies were supposed to be produ producing, right? That there's something that always mm -hmm. stayed as, as other things were being chipped away. And that's almost always going to be that, that Black women were going to be producing more and more people to be, you know, absorbed and worked to death. And that, 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 that calculus of Black death was almost always predicated on a black life that black women were supposed to produce and walk away from. That th there's a certain type of assumed callousness there, right? Like it's so, there's so much, right? So Jennifer, you know, sort of pushed me when I'm, so I wrote a lot about black women, you know, sort of putting their bodies in the street, black women beating on each other <laughs> in the name of freedom. I, sometimes the things that happened in the book that I wrote, I still am not settled with. Um, you know, there are, there are moments that I just sort of say, oh, what are my people doing? But my people are trying to get free, just like, you know, everybody else who we're writing about. They're always trying to get free by whatever means, but sometimes the means looks funny in the light. 
but we have to sit with that. And Jennifer's mm-hmm. work allowed me to always sit with it and think productively about it, you know, and not pathologically about it. And I'm eternally grateful to her because, you know, she came at the 11th, maybe 12th hour <laughs> in terms of <laughs> her presence, right? The work was there and I had read the work, but her presence, her eyes on my book, from the kind of, you know, kind of magisterial <laughs> work that she put together meant so much more about the better scholar that I became and continue to be um, as a result of, you know, her willingness to, you know, join in on the very kind of, <laughs> you know, still work in progress that is, you know, my scholarship, right? So, yes, um, there, there are too many ways in terms of, um, you know, kind of what Jennifer Morgan means to me, you know, personally, but certainly intellectually as well. Yeah, um, mine will be um, a shorter response. I say that and then I, and then I talk. <laughs> um, I was already, well, like, well, like um, Natasha, I was already in graduate school when I encountered her work. So I'm actually really grateful to um, to Ira Berlin, my advisor, and and um, and Elsa Barkley Brown, who was um, who is also at um, a University of Maryland, fantastic foundational Black woman historian, um, and having introduced me to to uh, laboring women's Jennifer Morgan's work. And so, you know, I didn't, so I was already in the process of like pursuing the PhD, but what Morgan's work did for me in that process is similar to, um, to Dr. Lightfoot just, just earlier is a recognition that, you know, that I could, if I wanted to um, make my work focused on black women, that there is actually enough work there, uh, archive research there to plumb more than enough that we've really only scratched the surface. I remember reading in her footnotes um, as a graduate student that she had, at the time, um, there were only three monographs uh, by U.S. historians uh, on focused solely on Black women. Hers, Stephanie Camp's uh, Closer to Freedom on Black Women's Resistance on Plantations and Deborah Gray White's, um, which we know mm-hmm. um, actually, you know, created, um, caused the Library mm-hmm. of Congress to create the subject heading of female slaves in 1985 or 86. I forget what year the Library of Congress 85. did it. It was published in 85. 85. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so at the time that this is, um, you know, like at the time, 10 years later, essentially, when Morgan and Camp are publishing their books, like there's still only three. And so that was, um, and that was important to know, like it was important to know um, that as a graduate student, it was possible and that my, my dissertation could do, um, could dare to do something, you know, similar, but also important to know that it's actually going to be really hard <laughs> and that um, clearly there's a reason that this much time has passed and that there are these few, these few monographs and, um, and that's important to keep in mind too. So it was also about, it was about the book and the, and the research, but it was also about, you know, thinking about Dr. Morgan as a model and as a scholar, as a Black woman historian, who was out in the academy doing the work and being the professor and professional that I that I wanted to and that I admired deeply, uh, and so it was um, it was it was not the thing that propelled me into graduate school per se, but it was certainly one of the things that kept me there 
and one of the things that keeps me is one of the um, part of a compass north, um, a constellation of things mm. that are a compass north that keep me focused on what I'm here to do and what it means to be a Black woman historian operating an academy, working at a university, what that responsibility looks like, um, and what that voice needs to needs to speak up about, if that makes sense. Um, so for me, um, well, I just, I'm in my now second year of my PhD, so uh, Dr. Morgan definitely propelled me into doing this type of work. Um, I did mention that I first read her in my third year, but I actually revisited Morgan, like, by way of her um, small acts article, Parasite Prevention, in my master's, uh, when I was in my master's at U of T. And it really started to make me think about the legal framework of slavery. Um, and unlike, um, so doc, Dr. Johnson was talking about linking it to an American historiography, I was thinking about what other um, monographs deal with women in a Caribbean context. I was thinking about Lucille Mather and Mare, I was thinking about Hilary Beckles, and at the same time, Ezra Morgan in conjunction with um, Jackie Alexander. And in really interesting ways, they're both dealing with different uh, different periods, but they're both thinking about the state's control over women's reproductive lives. So for me, I saw a window to think about uh, parasecular ventrum or matrilineal inheritance um, in the Caribbean, thinking about it in the post-emancipation period. Um, and, thinking about masculine inheritance and its afterlife. Um, and without Dr. Morgan's work, I wouldn't be able to think about, as Dr. Lightfoot was talking about, how women and men experienced um, freedom differently. So it was, it's been like absolutely foundational for me doing the work I do, being able to think about Black women. Um, I wouldn't even have a dissertation topic without her. Whew. That, that that's a whole lot there for that that could that what y'all just said could be the podcast and we could be done but we're not don't y'all y'all better not go nowhere y'all better not go nowhere um because i think that uh it, it's also interesting in terms of the fact that uh i think dr morgan was on a panel i saw it on youtube um at Brown, uh, I think a year or two ago, it was about slavery and capitalism. And one of the funniest things is that she says that, you know, Dr. Morgan says that I'm not a historian of capitalism, but, and it's like, you can't have the history of capitalism without her work and the work that really y'all do um, and we do. And so I think it's very, I, I think it's interesting, especially because of the work that she has coming out, I think either the end of this year or next year with Duke University Press. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm very much interested in that work because it, it's, it, it's the, she, she, she would say that it's the closest to, you know, slavery and capitalism for the work that she's done. Um, but it's also just interesting seeing how that subfield of, um, slavery studies being, uh, slavery and capitalism, um, she, I think has very much influenced, or at least she should influence more and more of the work going forward. Um, and, and that yeah that that's yeah history and capitalism that's a that's a yeah, that's a different podcast episode but you know I, I'll, I'll leave that one alone <laughs> um but dr johnson you actually brought up something very interesting in terms of dr camp's work so laboring women helped usher in a new generation of slavery scholars and scholarship when it was published in 04 
along with the late Dr. Stephanie Camp's Closer to Freedom. Because if I'm not mistaken, they were both produced or they were both published in the same year. And so in terms of connections and what it means to really bust the doors wide open with historical methodologies and more, tell us more. And obviously this is for the for the entire group here. Tell us why 2004 was and is effectively a watershed moment in African-American Black studies, Black women's history, and the list goes on. You know, I feel like um, I'm actually might end up having to defer to Dr. Lightfoot on this slavery scholar history. Um, from what I understand, because this is before my my time, from what I understand, there was something really important that was happening in the field. Um, and I think of the connections between um, Baptist's work, um, Ed Baptist's work, Vincent Brown's work, Stephanie Camp, Jennifer Morgan, the people who came together for the New Studies in, um, in History of American Slavery volume that was actually out of a symposium. So there's also the moments of symposium where people um, network, find connections, um, find like minds. Um, and I think that was that was 2002. Um, the work that uh, was happening. Um, Herman Bennett also organized a symposium, I think the same year or the next year. And so there's there's something interesting about the pedagogical um, and community formation work of symposiums and conferences, which I don't think we talk about enough, but for those of us who are scholars of color, Black scholars, um, ethnic studies scholars in the academy, these become really important spaces for us to find people who are um, doing, you know, like work. And I say that in the sense like they're so important that actually we should, one of the um, Black Lives Matter um, and Black Lives Matter statement that Johns Hopkins History Department issued, one of the things that we made sure to include was that we actually need to make sure that we have funding for our graduate students, particularly graduate students who are in fields like Black history, like diasporic history, to attend these smaller symposiums and these one-off workshops and conferences um, because the larger spaces are huge, A, and also um, not always the um, the community care spaces that, that foster um, the kind of work that our scholars are doing, um, particularly if they're doing anything in the realm of, 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 um, of, of Black life and Black humanity. Um, so, so there's something about these spaces, I think, that were happening in these early, in the early 2000s, but there's also something about that moment and the work that's happening as far as thinking about the, um, the infrapolitical. So you have um, James Scott's hidden transcripts. You have um, Robin Kelly doing work around um, uh, race rebels and the and the kind of mm-hmm. cultural politics and um, micro what people call micro politics, infra politics. Basically, how do we think about black political life and action when it's not electoral, when it's not you know institutional and labor organizing, and when it's in moments of like fundamental dispossession. And um, and violence when it seems like black political life or political life in general it can't be possible because the circumstances are so impressive, and these were scholars who were training um, the scholars who then um, created the, the the slavery scholarship of the early two thousands. Um, so I think there was something a tie there to a shift in how we think about the political in the academy, and scholars then applying that to. The period of slavery, but I'm going to um, pass this to Dr. Lifeford because I think that she might have a better idea than me. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> Dr. Johnson, you kind of laid it all out. Um, <laughs> the, so, you know, passing it to me might not establish anything new, um, but the one point 
that was also kind of always on my mind about what happened in the early 2000s is that, you know, there were certain programs that in the 90s were productive of really important shifts in talking about, you know, the history of enslavement by specifically creating programs dedicated to the Black Atlantic, to diaspora, right? The, the naming of a field and the creation of cohorts that actually could speak to one another about this. And so I'm thinking of, um, you know, Duke <laughs> and all of the people that came through that program, yes. you know, and how then Julia Scott went from Duke to Michigan and all of the people that mm -hmm. came through that program. And then some people who came out of that program, like my advisor, Ada Ferrer, and, you know, and people like Jennifer coming out of Duke end up at a place like NYU and create a program that then is joined in by people like a Robin Kelly, a Walter Johnson, a Mike Gomez. Are you kidding me? And, mm. you know, you, you cannot you forget Michael Gomez. About, listen, at all, at all, right? So when you start letting yourself imagine how ideas are produced when there is institutional commitment and money put behind educating a group of people together to be able to talk. It's not just one lone person. In my cohort at NYU, there were a full six of us who were doing diaspora Atlantic studies, right? It was a, we were in all classes together. There were people in American studies. I'm, I'm thinking about folks like, you know, Peter Hudson and Rich Blint who were in the American studies program, but so, but still found themselves in history classes, <laughs> you know, people like Aisha Finch, you know, Sherry Randolph, Brian Purnell, we were all in these classes to get Rashana Johnson coming behind us and other co and Eller. Like that NYU story is also a Duke and a Michigan story. And so, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. How do you yeah, end up absolutely. with, certain types of interventions happening in the early 2000s is because there were programs in the 90s that cared enough to step out and say, and, and there were scholars there with real institutional juice, okay? <laughs> so a Peter mm -hmm. Wood, a Julia Scott, a Rebecca Scott, okay? <laughs> Those folks. You're reminding me that Peter Wood, <laughs> you're reminding me that Peter Wood was at Duke too. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's really mm -hmm. important to do some intellectual genealogies here and, you know, shout out to the black scholars and also to white scholars who understood the importance of, you know, telling the histories of black folks in certain ways. Shout out to, to the Latinx folks who were telling this history and bringing in the Latinx component. You know, like we had a real moment in the 90s that produced certain histories that came to fruition in the early 2000s that then folks like us who were in graduate school, you and me, Jessica, in the 2000s, right? We get to read this treasure trove of intellectual production, you know? Um, and we're able to then, you know, say that, look, our work is possible. There's a whole generation produced that made, you know, this, this story possible. Right. And I feel like I'm not even, uh, you know, I'm, I'm leaving out programs. Right. Like, there's, you know, Nell Painter at Princeton and the whole entire, mm. like, by herself, what she was able to do over there in terms of the scholarship produced under her tutelage. Right. So, you know, 
the list goes on. I mean, there's Rutgers as a program. Like, <laughs> again, what yeah. Deborah Gray White did institutionally and then brought on people, again, like Jennifer Morgan at the time, Herman Bennett, you know, but, but there's a Hopkins, another place that, you know what I mean? So we can go on and on. But the point is, is that some of these programs did so much for just sort of cementing the value of doing this work and saying, you know, that there should be multiple students admitted to programs thinking about these issues at the same time. Because it's one thing, it you know, it's your greatest teachers in, in graduate school will be your fellow graduate students. So... How 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 could it not be that the that the early two thousands was a really important moment for you know flourishing scholarship of this kind? We're we're better for it, you know, and we need to Amen. continue it. Amen. And, and yeah, honestly, it makes me think of like. Uh you know what's what's that what's that cash money records taking over for the nine on the 2000 when y'all was talking i was thinking like look black scholars of the uh, of the black tradition taking over for the nine nine and the 2000 okay. like <laughs> that's that's literally that's literally yeah. like the remixing of like everything that i was um that i was thinking about in terms of you're right just thinking about like the intellectual genealogies and it's especially interesting as someone um doing comps this summer where even just a part of my practice of reading is just reading the acknowledgments and thinking about like oh snap this is you know this is a community that fostered this this is a community yeah. that did this you know and and you know i'm here at Rutgers, and i would not be here if it wasn't for dr white and you know, I, I, I came to work with uh, uh, Dr. Dunbar, um, but obviously I would not be here if it was not for Dr. White. And just and also just thinking about like, um, I think it was, uh, it was a Christopher Leslie Brown's book ha talks about how, you know, it's the Black Atlantic Seminar that mm -hmm. helped him, you know, produce and, and, and even um, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought I heard this at a symposium. Um, I think that ABWH did that was on YouTube. I th wasn't uh, Dr. Sasha Turner also a um, postdoc at Rutgers as well, working with Dr. White? Did I get that right? Mm, I'm not sure, but, you know, doesn't seem far-fetched. <laughs> I don't know. Jessica, well, do you know for but sure? This is, yeah. I don't know for sure, but there is an interesting overlap in that Dr. Sasha Turner was a postdoc at Washington University in their African, African American Studies program, where we know Shawande Mustakim is. So again, thinking of connections, mm. where Dr. Rafi Zafar is, where I got my BA. Um, right. You know, so like there are so like there there are these hot spots um, in, mm -hmm. in the academy that have helped. And I, I want to like co-sign what what Natasha said about the institutional buy-in piece, like that where institutions are are committing to fostering communities, cohorts of students who are doing this work, of students of color, of Black students, of Black diasporic yes. students who are interested in doing this work, who can then find a community among each other, as well as um, fostering faculty of color, fostering um, programming 
like symposium, like workshops, fostering postdocs, you will see this kind of magnificent scholarship emerge. There is a direct correlation between institutions putting their money where their mouth is and the kind of scholarship that comes out that changes how we think about the world, that changes the academy, that pushes history to think differently, that wins the awards, like as all the books that we're talking about essentially did. And um, right. and that, you know, and that that reshapes the field, like fundamentally reshapes the field. And so um, so thinking of like added, we could add Wash U certainly to that to that as a as a space. Um, me and Dr. Turner were both postdocs at the Richard Civil War Era Center at Penn State University. So there's like you know like there are there's a direct correlation there. Um, and or even things like the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program, of which I was yeah. a student and scholar at Wash U. Stephanie Camp was also a Mellon Mays Fellow, which I found out because I was snooping and, and fangirling over her once I, I literally looked this up in 2004 because <laughs> I read you know, Closer mm. to Freedom and I was like well this has changed my life so who is this person and it turns out this is somebody who I could actually model my you know like my career against and same thing with, with Dr. Morgan when I did a similar <laughs> deep dive into her catalog so you know there are there's, there's something about 2004 but it's not like by accident that you know these black scholars became geniuses and they're so good and look like now they're out in the world this is structural and there's something that can be fostered and it can actually be the standard in the academy if institutions are willing to commit and it's the mm -hmm. least that these institutions can do because they have the money to do it that right now there is a real radicalism happening outside of institutions. And yeah. these institutions are nowhere near the vanguard, right? Let's just be clear about that. The moment we are in, they are not the leader in any way of the change that is taking place outside. But if you want to at least make it possible so that there are generations of people who can you know, be supported as they analyze what is taking place in our world now and what historical structures underline what is taking place in our world now. Put the money up because y'all have that. You know what I mean? That be the start of something. It's the very least that can be done. Amen. Amen. And 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 you know it's interesting too. Um so so we've also been talking about laboring women. We've talked about a number of different subjects. So how about we zoom in on Dr. Morgan herself, right? So, so, so zooming out from the text and looking at her, describe in as much detail as you feel comfortable, of course, um, what Dr. Morgan and her work means to you and also her as like actual a person, right? Your actual, uh, uh, you know, interactions with her. What does she, what, what does Dr. Morgan mean to y'all? She's an institution builder. Right. To go off or piggyback off of the last, you know, conversation. That's one of the things that makes it so important to have someone like her, you know, in the field, being senior, chairing a department at a major institution that, you know, makes scholarship like this happen. You know, but she's someone who I mean, she's written, you know, for everybody, tenure letters recommendation letters. She's someone who is constantly creating symposia, you know, her her presence in the Burke, okay? <laughs> you know, that just one institution of many that she contributes so much to, right? Because she's also 
on, you know, has been involved with programming for the OAH, for ABWH, for, you know, there's just too many different scholarly collectives that we can point to that Jennifer Morgan's presence is clearly there, right? <laughs> and makes a difference in terms of then who she brings along with her, right? Because the, the thing is, is that like, I know personally, I would not have ever attended a Big Burks, a Little Burks and been in that network without her encouraging me personally to go. You know what I mean? These are the kinds of things that, you know, Ultimately, I'm going to quote her <laughs> in, a, you know, kind of many conversations. I'm going to paraphrase something that she always says is that, you know, ultimately her work isn't even on behalf of these institutions so much as it is about trying to make sure that these institutions look different, look better for Black women when she's done with them than they look when she started. Yeah, she's whew, institution building. That is something that to me is so um it, it's so it's so important that institution building is how we all get here, right? It's the apparatus that provides us an opportunity to um it provides us an opportunity to be present. It provide People like Dr. Morgan are the people that, like you said, writing tenure uh, letters, but also recommendation letters. And we all know that recommendations um, are really how we all get here, right? We don't yeah. have, sh shoot, recommendation letters are, you know, <laughs> the found, you know, the foundation. And also as someone who wrote one for uh, undergrad two years ago, yo, <laughs> you discovered there are a lot of work. <laughs> Yo. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah. That work is waiting for you. It is like I, I was like, so 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 I'd be reading Twitter. I'd be reading Twitter and I'd be like, oh, oh, they they talking about recommendations. So da, 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 da. I me doing that, like uh uh, you know, falling back on that experience, I was like, Yo, I see why y'all be like, give me a year before, uh, before the application deadline or whatever. You know, obviously I'm playing about the year, but just like, well, I, yeah, I, we I, need time. We need time because these things are work, and especially if you're someone who's constantly being approached. So when I think about Dr. Morgan and what she means to me. Um, what I think about, uh, are the ways that, you know, she is this, to me, this, like this giant in the field, this foundational scholar, this person who has reshaped how I think about the period of slavery, the early modern era, the Atlantic, the diaspora that is as steeped in, um, you know, early modern European literature and theory as she is in, um, you know, the histories of capitalism, um, the, the economic histories of the plantation, um, the, uh, the African polities um, in West African coasts, like is just this phenomenal person who is still willing to, you know, to sit down with me um, for coffee at a conference when I know her taught nap, especially now I know, 
how busy her time must be, how much in demand she must be, um, how busy conferences are, is willing to show up and, and, and does it with like, you know, with joy, like with joy and generosity. Um, she's a phenomenally generous scholar. Again, I completely co-sign about institution building. And I think people forget so much of institution building isn't being the name in the room, um, although she obviously is the name in the room. It's also showing up and showing up consistently, showing up for the committee meeting, um, responding to the email, like the nitty gritty work that you know, folks who are, you know, you know, grassroots organizers know is the work that actually gets things done. It's not being the the name, you know, that only gets you, that doesn't, I would say it doesn't get you that far, but it only, that certainly only gets you so far. And if there's anybody who consistently, you know, does the kind of nitty gritty stuff that is thankless, literally in the academy, like literally has no you can't, there's no points for responding to all of the emails um, when they, when you turn in your annual review or your tenure review, um, but she does and has done it consistently. Um, and so I feel extremely um, grateful to her um, for that and for modeling that and for that kind of care that she gives to junior scholars and to the field in general. Um, and, and also a little bit, not a little bit, like a lot in awe of her capacity to do that and also to, you know, have space for herself and her own, you know, desires and needs, whatever they may be in the world, and to keep those as private as she wants to. You know, like, I think there's something really amazing about the model that she um, gives us for how to operate as scholars and also how to, um, for Black women scholars who are often the most overworked um, in capacity-wise, women of color scholars in general, the most overworked capacity-wise in the academy, um, the model that she offers to do that and also to know that we can do amazing work um, as well. Uh, and so it's just, yes. So Dr. Morgan, if you were listening, thank you so much for everything, all the things you already know, um, because they have really, they have changed. They have changed how we think about, um, how we think about the past and also the future of the work that we do. It really has. Absolutely. So Hallie, what about you? What does Dr. Morgan and her work mean to you and, and why? Um, so I've actually never had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Morgan. So I'll keep mine brief, but um, like I said before, my work could not exist without hers. Um, I'm forever grateful to what she's given us. Um, Dr. Lightfoot also mentioned that she's an institution builder and for me, um, kind of coming up in history, she's also like a canon builder, along with, for me, Deborah Gary-Way, um, Lucy, Lucia Mathern-Mare, thinking about Black women um, as a study on their own and how we can exist on a monograph of their own. So she's given me a field of research that I can now feel comfortable and feel confident um, to be a part of, and I'll be forever grateful for that. It's beautiful. Yeah. And Dr. Morgan, you know, I know you're listening. Um, for, for me, I, th I think that Dr. Morgan means, uh, and, and, I, and I met her uh, a couple times and, and working with her in different capacities with uh, the Omohundra Institute as well. She, she's just an, an amazingly, I, I think we sometimes take for granted being nice. Like, so there's some mean old suckers out here. And, and and I don't mean old, like I mean old, like, you know, if you're black, you know what I'm talking about. And so 
<laughs> she she to me has just been one of the nicest people. Um, I met her at the um, I saw her at the Omohundro Institute's uh, conference, uh, the the last one in 2019, and she was just like it 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 was something. I w- this might be another podcast, but it was something to be said that I I knew like 95 percent of the black people there, and I can kind of count them on all my hands, and so um, I. It, it was fun to realize and also unfortunate to a certain degree that there's so few black early Americanists, like broadly, you know, quote unquote vast hashtag vast early America. Uh, but there's a few mm-hmm. black folks. And so just thinking about what she means to the field of early America um, and what she's opened up for not only us on this podcast, but also so many of the listeners and folks who probably haven't even heard this this episode yet. So I think that that calling her like up as like an important person in that particular space, especially in colonial, uh, or, you know, early American studies. So I think that for me talking about legacies, right. That to me is one of her long lasting legacies. Um, and just for me personally, just as a nice, nice person that is, uh, that's joyous. And I think y'all, y'all, y'all are, uh, y'all haven't heard the episode that I did with her yet, but y- y'all are really gonna like it, and and you'll really obviously see the the nice uh, person that she is over the course of that hour, um, and, uh, and and yeah, so so segmenting actually to to our final couple questions, y'all. Um, how does your work build on Doctor Morgan's? Um, well, I'll, I'll go first because I feel like um, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Lightfoot have more work to talk about than I do. Um, so for me, um, I said this a little bit earlier, but I'm thinking about parasocular ventrum or what I also call maturing inheritance in the post-emancipation period. Um, so using, especially if we talked about with chapter one, using um kind of the images of Black women's unruly sexuality, monstrous physiognomy, and the way that created the plantation system. I'm thinking about how matrilineal inheritance, what are, the, what are its legacies in the post-emancipation period um, in ways that it's often remade in new immediate post-emancipation laws um, and different ways to control and kind of surveil Black women's reproductive um, bodies, but at the same time, how Black women respond to these systems of control and how do they remake, how they envision motherhood and how they remake um, their erotic lives to kind of abscond or get out of these systems of surveillance. So I'm looking at it in both ways. So I'm happy to, um, I could like, talk forever about <laughs> um, the way that Dr. Morgan's work is is the foundation for for my own work. Um, so in um, Wait and Flesh, Black Women, Intimacy and Freedom in the Atlantic World, which is um, out now, um, the focus is on the ways that African women and women of African descent uh, experience the reproductive violence of slavery, but also um, use 
um, intimacy and intimate practices as strategies to expand the meaning of freedom. So for me, um, of course, foundational in um, to my work is the discussion of, of reproductive labor as labor as, as another category of labor that we have to take seriously when we're studying slavery, um, but also that we have to take seriously that um, enslaved women and free women that have intimate lives um, and engage in intimate practices that move beyond reproduction, that, um, that the, um, that, uh, what you call it, scaling reproductive um, experiences of enslaved women to solely, you know, part of sacred intervention or solely the productive capacities of the slaveholding regime actually um, diminishes and is, is inaccurate for how Black women themselves experience um, reproducing, um, range of sexual practices, uh, motherhood, community formation, um, intimacy, all of its definitions. And when I talk about it in the book, I talk about it in its most expansive way as um, carnal, corporeal, um, exchange of fluids, all of this. Um, and so what Dr. Morgan's work does is um, do a lot of the um, opens a door, as I mentioned before. It'll do a lot of the foundational work of of introducing us to reproductive lives of enslaved women, which has allowed me to walk through that door and move the, you know, hopefully move the conversation not just through reproduction, but also to intimacy, to sexuality, to pleasure, um, and to all of the attendant violences that come with that when you're dealing with um, enslaved women in a, in a slave holding regime. So. Um, her, my work um, hopefully builds on that to the extent that it could hope to build on that uh, and also is in, in kinship with that as well. Um, so for me, I think it's always just refreshing to have someone um, like uh, Jennifer Morgan doing the work of not just putting out there the fullness of Black women's um, lives under um, the institution of enslavement, um, but also cautioning us from always, um, you know, sort of indulging in, um, you know, kind of that, again, that liberal progress narrative of things getting better always mm -hmm. as we move forward in time, that so much of what she traced was that descent into, you know, further violence, um, that you know, at times, like, the work of community formation also bore negative consequences for women um, because it was social, you know, social engineering in terms of coupling and fertility monitoring that only became more precise as enslavement continued, right? That child-rearing responsibilities for, you know, women became only more onerous <laughs> as the system sort of figured itself out and continued, right? So these kinds of, you know, these kinds of, um, you know, specific, you know, turns that she brought forth in the way that she tells the story, you know, that, you know, survival is happening, that resistance is happening, but let's not get too ahead of ourselves into something, you know, that is surely, um, you know, celebratory or, you know, kind of, I don't know, I guess, you, you know, that, that sort of um, way that, I think what she was doing was speaking to something a little bit of the generations that came before her in terms of writing about the slave family and, you know, the sort of the the making of enslaved society through, you know, well-meaning, but still 
very much a kind of, you know, kind of um, patriarchal, you know, sort of very kind of particular black nationalist inflected ways of telling the story of enslavement that um, in many ways tapered over some of the complicated relationships that happened within slave communities that, you know, she was very much um, unafraid to put, you know, put forth um, that sense that everything about, you know, an African woman's life in, you know, in this part of the world for centuries was just nothing but, um, you know, really seriously complicated struggles um, to live. Um, and I also appreciate her very careful attention to archives. And that is something that, you know, again, a really important generation of scholarship came forward that actually problematized the notion of working with an archive as is, right? That, you know, you have at the same time that she's doing this work in the field of history, folks like Sadia Hartman doing it for literature, folks like Michelle Roth-Priot doing it for anthropology, and yet they're all engaged with history, right? That those kinds of careful attentiveness and being clear and speaking in the first person about the approach, right? In all of these folks' work and others, that there is a kind of, um, there's something freeing to everyone who comes behind them when they, you know, sort of put pen to paper and say, you know, this is how I understand the archives that I'm working with, its limits, the ways that I have to really flip sources inside out to be able to do the kinds of work that I'm doing, ask the questions that I'm asking in the materials, know that the materials I'm working with aren't going to answer these questions in any way that might look satisfactory to you. But, you know, and you being all of the generations that maybe came before and some of the people that, you know, folks who were working even at the time um, in the very same generations of scholars, right, may not have seen as sort of legitimate ways of doing this work. Um, and yet she was, you know, very much clear that this, um, you know, very much unorthodox approach um, to reading a will to under as a way to understanding the life of an enslaved woman, <laughs> it, you know, the will of someone who owned her and speculated about what could come from her body long after that person's death, those types of theoretical interventions, methodological really as well interventions um, are absolutely helpful for me as I, you know, as I thought about the archive that I was working with in, you know, a very different time period um, at the end of slavery, where again, um, you know, in my book, Troubling Freedom, there was always a sort of, you know, speculation on the part of British colonial um, officials about what slavery was supposed to be and how Black people were supposed to comport themselves and how Black women were supposed to, um, you know, undergird the enterprise by, you know, forming families and, cre you know, creating communities that would 
fall neatly into a Protestant work ethic. And so being able to take lessons that I learned from texts like Labor and Women and, you know, completely throw all of that into question without feeling like I had done a disservice <laughs> or I had done this thing, you know, in some way that, you know, was was somehow somehow didn't make sense that everything that I could do was legible in my questioning of my archives because in fact she and a generation of scholars along with her were were you know just willing to constantly question what we had to work with in the very first place when we sat down to tell these histories. There's a who wow. Y'all, that, that, that's amazing. Like her, I can, you know, it's interesting. I can only imagine what Dr. Morgan is thinking right now. Like when she, when she's listening to y'all and us just gush over, over her work and, 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 and what that means. Because as y'all know, we don't be giving people their flowers uh, b- before, you know, thing, things happen and in a year like 2020, where literally the, the impossible in 2019 is very much possible. It seems now. Um, I think that it's one where we, we definitely got to give thanks to those who have blazed a trail uh, for us. And, you know, labor and women is 16 years old. Like that, that's, it's remarkable. And, and it's a book that will, I believe, stand the test of time and, and be field changing for for everybody that 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 touches it um going forward um and speaking of haha looking forward um i love these questions i love i love looking forward i love you know being cool and kind of trying to predict the future where do y'all three see the field of slavery studies going we'll start with dr johnson (laughs) (laughs) um so, <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to try and, and do a bridge from the last question to the to this question because um, some of what uh, Natasha was laying out there about questioning um, to me is so important uh, that we have to continue to question the assumptions that we've had about slavery, about the early modern era, about the Atlantic world, about Africans, and what is happening on the African continent at this moment. Um, I'm really excited about um, Dr. Morgan's new project um, on part of Sequoia Invention and um, uh, what I imagine will even deepen even further the intellectual history of reproduction and, and enslaved women's intellectual understanding, theorization of reproduction, taking them seriously is, is also part of the process of creating a reproductive logic in this in this earlier moment. Um, and I think that that is actually a really important piece. I know it's one of the things that I'm that I that I hope. I achieved in Wicked Flesh is is to not just question, but also to to challenge scholars of slavery to see everything that is in this slaveholding era as having a history, so that nothing comes wholesale to us from the six from 1685 to 1810. So the slavery that is happening, um, the logic of slavery that's happening in 16, in the 1600s is not the same logic that's happening in the eight, in 1800. But somehow we, um, we, there are things that we see as like, you know, having history and information and, and, and having actors that are shifting the, 
the the understanding of this or that and and capitalism is obviously one of them there's rich histories of capitalism and how we think about capital and economics and um, the plantation machine, et cetera. And somehow slavery as an institution, how we think of chattel as a category and blackness as part of that category and the formation of blackness, that seems to drop out of the bottom when we're doing our, our studies and our histories and our methodologies. And so the idea that blackness is a thing that has a history and not just as a social construction, but as a give and take back and forth between enslaved Africans, people who become African, first of all, um, who are enslaved and who have something to say about these ideas of blackness that are put upon them um, and Europeans who are trying to enslave them and, and exert their dominance on them, that that actually has a history, I think is really um, something that, you know, I'm hoping I'm interrogating in Wicked Flesh that I think Morgan offers us, offered us, you know, so much earlier and more foundationally as, as reproduction having a history. And I'm hoping that scholars of, of, of slavery are, are also taking that up, that we can think in really rigorous ways that challenge everything we actually thought we knew about what is important to understand about this period. I see Herman Bennett's um, newest work, um, African Kings, Black Slaves, is also doing this as challenging everything we thought we knew about these earlier years of diplomacy and sovereignty and trade that um, and slavery that are happening between um, the Iberian Peninsula and West Africa. Um, so I'm seeing, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm looking forward to the ways that we are um, also um, continuing to challenge how we think about the archives. Um, Marisa Fuentes' book, Dispossessed Lives, is iconic in this and has really reshaped how people even talk about archives and archival violence and the violence that, that you attend to when you're discussing enslaved women um, in particular in um, Caribbean's archive of slavery. Uh, but we can also continue to do more there in thinking about how do we grapple with an archive that is not forthcoming and how do we um, you know, continue to or not tell stories um, out of that space. Um, and so I think that those are two histories of everything, I guess, histories of the now is, um, I think, a phrase that people are using as well. Um, but also, um, what are the, the, what is the constituent elements, the data, the, the, the sources that we're using in order to tell that history? I think, I think slavery studies will, will be having deeper and deeper conversations about things like that. I hope. Um, if I could follow Dr. Johnson, um, so I'm right now, I'm deep in my fields reading, so I'm starting to get a better understanding of historiography and what Dr. Johnson was uh, mentioning about how Black people have a history that we need to contend with that begins on the African coast. So I think something that Dr. Morgan did and something that we will that has forever shaped the field and where we're going is the ways in which we talk about Black people within the plantation complex. Um, so often I've seen in the books I've been reading is that uh, when they talk about Black people within the transatlantic slave trade, they get grouped into the goods category. Um, and I think about the violence of that, where we are theorizing Black folks beside um, textiles and as much as we need to think about the commodification, I think the kind of the re the reinvigorate ah uh, sorry um the remaking of the archives and the types of archives we are using create the possibility to tell different types of stories. I'm thinking of like Dr. Johnson said Fuentes, I'm thinking of Morgan, I'm also thinking of Hartman, 
um, critical fabulation or speculative histories kind of allow us to think about Black women's space and history quite differently. Um, like Dr. Johnson's work, thinking about what role did Black women play on the African coast. Um, we just, uh, for Dr. Johnson's Slavery Archive uh, book club, we just read uh, Vincent Brown's Taffy Revolt. So thinking about gender in different ways, gender as and involved in warfare, when we start to rethink our, our archives, I think we're going um, in a completely different direction versus the older texts that I've been reading. Um, and then just secondly, I think thinking about incorporating Black studies, I think we need to think more closely about Black and Indigenous relations. I'm thinking about Tiffany Lebatho King. I'm thinking also about uh, Melanie Newton. And I think that is something that we are beginning to think more intimately through, through geography and through context. So I think those are two places that we're going. Um, I think, I don't know that I could, you know, sort of have too much news to add because you all have covered a lot of really fertile ground um, that, <laughs> you know, that Jennifer Morgan's work opens up onto um, alongside this, you know, a legion of scholars, you know, kind of joining this, you know, this intellectual call. Um, I really am uh, struck by, you know, kind of the importance of thinking about thinking about the the Atlantic world more expansively. Um, that you know that she was very clear in the work about how you know, the Carolinas and Barbados were not just sort of quintessential um, sites for tracing, you know, this kind of, um, you know, the story of, of Black women's, um, you know, sort of remaking um, through the slave trade and enslavement. Um, but I also feel like she was very much emphasizing the connection. And I think for much of the work that is coming out, there is this, you know, sense that the, that there is no history that's taking shape in that sort of, in that vacuum that, you know, sort of who, you know, sort of definitions of what we understand, you know, a kind of, you know, a, a productive, um, black woman's body to be in this, in these moments, um, are sort of coming out of very um, specific ways of seeing place, and also trying to push against um, as well the kind of the categorizations that come out of one place versus another by saying, "Look, these places." you know, are sort of in conversation with one another. I don't know. I'm trying to get at the sense that, you know, that almost, because we we spent a lot of time talking around, you know, the phrase Atlantic. Um, and, I, you know, I think about sort of the Black Atlantic, the text by Gilroy as another kind of foundational text for our discussion. But I recall it as something that was very much a male-centered text you know, that we spent a lot of time sort of questioning, you know, who's in the Atlantic? What does, who shapes an Atlantic? Who's mobile within it? What kind of categories are mobilized within it? 
Um, and so, you know, getting back to the beginning point that I made about Black women being there and how much um, Jennifer Morgan's work, you know, sort of it issued that call and kept insisting on it, um, you know, that so much of how we understand the Atlantic differently is because um, we think about how, again, how are, how are Black women experiencing it? in specific ways. Um, and I feel like we're, we're, you know, kind of where we're going with histories of gender, sexuality, um, you know, that folks like you, Dr. Johnson, are out here asking questions about how we can queer slavery, how we can queer the Black Atlantic, that we're constantly pushing, you know, kind of opening up new ground and, and getting more expansive with what we see as you know, this category that we all presume ourselves to be working within, but also are hopefully trying to constantly, you know, just, you know, we're trying to, to both, in, in one way we're working within the boundaries of something, and yet in another way we're trying to resist the actual containment that the initial boundaries might have set. And I think Jennifer's work was very much instrumental in what comes after in terms of, you know, again, pushing that expansion. So I feel like the work on slavery that's going to come forward from here across fields, like, you know, not just in history, but especially in history, right? Like we need more historians to think more creatively. And I think Jennifer's work helps us do that. Um, so I don't know if that's a good answer to add, but I feel like <laughs> that's kind of, you know, where my mind went as I listened to both, you know, sort of the wonderful responses from both, um, you know, Jessica and, and Halia on, on what, what's next. It's, it's incredible because I think that one of the aspects of um, slavery studies that you even see um, growing now is, um, or are folks doing work in um, colonial, you know, studies, right? In colonial uh, American studies, as we'll call them. Uh, because obviously colonial means very different in the different imperial contexts. But I think that even just looking at what Dr. Morgan is doing in terms of producing scholars, um, because I think that's another way that you can kind of, you know, look at where the field is going by who is producing scholars where, right? So, so I think that, hmm, let's think here. We have a place like Johns Hopkins where if I'm not mistaken, there's someone named Dr. Martha Jones. If I'm not mistaken, there's somebody named Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson. Oh, yeah. And there's someone named Dr. Sasha Turner. Oh, so that's a place where people going to be producing folk at. There's Rutgers and Michigan State and NYU, right? So we have someone like uh, uh, Elise Mitchell, who's about to be finished up at NYU. Shouts out to you. And it's like, you know, Dr. J uh, Dr. Morgan's student. So I think that's even another place to to take uh, to, to, to pull an answer from is where are the places where folks are, um, are producing students in this quote unquote early American, uh, uh, scholarship. Um, and, um, even for just for myself, I, I think as well about, um, you know, going to Hallie's, uh, answer about gender and warfare, because also that was also a great question, by the way, during, uh, 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 uh Vince Brown's, um, uh, slavery archive, a book club discussion is one of my favorites. I'm just going to, I told you this in person, I'm going to put it on wax. Um, 
And so <laughs> it, it, it was one of my favorites because I was like, damn. And then you got Dr. Thavolia Glimpse's new book, uh, uh, The Women's Fight, that I was reading uh-huh. for cops, which which is like blows my mind because I'm thinking about from my own work writing about black loyalist women during the American Revolutionary uh, War and thinking about why is it archivally that we don't see them as actual air, like people in the military, right? Like pr- uh, providing military service. Right. And I, and I think there's a weird way that essential is going to be now, I think, in a way, going to be used in scholarship just because it's so it's so much in the ether now. But to use that. Right. They were effectively essential workers because British policy at different times was about um, taking enslaved people out of their plantation context and having them labor for the for the for the um, for the British in different capacities and black women were very much a part of that project as freedom seekers in this particular way. So how do we think about the war differently when we center their particular experiences in the context of warfare? Um, so that's to me somewhere where the, the field is going as well. So thank you, Dr. Dunbar. Appreciate you for taking this on. Just, just, just going to let you know. Um, she, she already knows, but, um, but, uh, but, but no, I think that all of our answers are, phenomenal for us to understand where the heck slavery studies is going and also we got three of the people who will be shaping that process in different ways over these next over this next generation so i really appreciate (laughs) y'all thank you so much thank you thank you hey hey we speaking into existence we speaking into existence it's gonna happen like we all gonna get out of twenty twenty and look at twenty twenty one. Like, hey now, you better not play like twenty twenty. <laughs> oh my goodness, this was great! Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Good, good. Thank you. You're so welcome. And so once again, y'all, we have none other than Dr. Natasha Lightfoot, Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, and a friend of mine in this in this graduate school field. Hallie Ashby from Johns Hopkins University. And Dr. Johnson's at Johns Hopkins and Dr. Natasha Lightfoot is at Columbia. And so folks, my name is Adam McNeil. And y'all, let me tell you, I got my life today. Like, let me tell y'all, this conversation, whew, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot to meditate over. And Dr. Morgan, because I know you're listening, I truly, truly, truly hope that you know how much we appreciate you and your work and just you we're we're blessed to be in your presence we blessed to to that your sun is shining on all of us even though we you know from six from six uh feet apart socially distanced and so i really hope that you appreciate <laughs> i really hope that you appreciate this conversation dr morgan and, and for all those out there i hope that y'all enjoyed it and um and thank y'all again for joining us today on new books in african-american studies a channel on the new books network If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast to receive the channel's interviews to your mobile devices. They usually come to your phone or your device somewhere in the 5 or 6 o'clock a.m. hour. And if you are so inclined, rate and review New Books in African American Studies wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Over and out.